Uh, when Ronald asked me or told me, I, it was him or Relin, you need to cover for the Wednesday night class, I said, well, what do I need to do? And Ronald said, well, whatever you want, if you want to kind of do what you're doing in your class or if you want to do a psalm. And so I felt like I had open season just look, and I looked at the next psalm that Ronald was supposed to do, and I liked it so much, I'm just going to steal it. So we're going to look at Psalm 19 tonight. I looked, and I think he did Psalm 18 last week. So if you will turn your Bibles to Psalm 19, uh, this is a wonderful psalm. Uh, and we're going to start just by reading it in its entirety. Um, so we're just going to read through Psalm 19 because I think it's helpful to kind of get a picture of the whole thing uh, before we start talking about it tonight. So starting in verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. When you study the Psalms, as you all have been doing for a good while now here in class, I think it's really important that we think about the genre of book that we're reading. And all that I mean by that to say is, if anyone says that every book of the Bible reads the exact same way, then they haven't read their Bible. It's just as simple as that. If you open your Bible to the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, and read that, and then you went and flipped it over to, say, the book of Isaiah, you're going to see that there's a difference in the way that those books read. Now, you may say it's all Greek to me, it all sounds the same, but if we look at the structure of those books, the way that they talk, Matthew and Mark would be written a lot more like a story, and Isaiah would be written a lot more like what we would call even poetry, like we could compare the Psalms to. Or maybe you would open to the, one of the New Testament epistles, which is Paul writing a letter, or another author writing a letter, and then compare that to something like the book of Leviticus. Those are going to be completely different styles of literature. And because of that, we have to keep these things in mind when we come to the text, or we might read it in the wrong way. Um, now, again, you say, well, there's not a wrong way to read the Bible. Just open it up and go. Well, there can be wrong ways to read the Bible, because if we don't have the right context in mind, uh, then we might misunderstand what is being told to us through the writings. And this is especially important when we come to poetic writings like the Psalms. So on one hand, I want to say when we're reading the Psalms, we're reading poetry, and, I'm, and Ronald's talked about this as you guys have worked through them. You know, the Psalms are poetry. They're songs written by David in a lot of cases, you know, as a pouring out of his heart to God. We have to read them in that context or we might mess them up. But on the other hand, I want to say 
we don't completely abandon all of our rules for reading the Bible just because we're reading the Psalms. In other words, there's some things that we continue doing, we continue using our same kind of mindset in reading it, even though that this scripture is given in the form of songs rather than something like a story or a set of rules like some of the other books are. And one of those rules is this. When you're reading something in the Bible, you've always got to remember the three C's. And I've heard Brother John Mayberry say this. What are the three C's of Bible reading? Context, 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 right? That's the three C's of reading the Bible. You've got to read everything in its context. To understand what you are reading, it is helpful to have some basic understanding of the context that that reading appears in. In other words, a simpler way of saying that is this. If you want to know what a verse of the Bible is about, because that's what we want to know, right? What is this verse about? It helps to know what the larger chapter that you're reading it in is about. And then if you can even get it to know what the larger book that you're reading it in is about. But the problem sometimes is that the context is difficult for us to parse out. So when we read a book of a chapter of the book of Psalms, we might go, well, what is this chapter about? And if I was to ask you, what is Psalm 19 about, which we just read all the way through, you could give me a lot of correct answers. Somebody might say, well, Psalm 19 is about the heavens declaring the glory of God. And it is. It does talk about that. Somebody else says, well, Psalm 19 is about the law of God. It's about the word of God. And it also talks about that. Well, somebody could say, well, Psalm 19 is actually about our inability to save ourselves from sin. There's sin that we have to ask God to forgive us of that we ourselves may not even be aware of. And God has to take care of that sin. We can't take care of it ourselves. Or maybe we say Psalm 19 is about our worship being acceptable in the eyes of God. And those are all right answers, but that's four different topics, right? And even as we went through and read, you might have noticed that sometimes going from slide to slide, we might as well have been going to a different psalm. It feels like a completely different context from one case to the next. And so the question is, is this psalm just, does it have no context? Well, this psalm is just David kind of throwing a mixed mishmash of things together, a hodgepodge of topics, uh, and there's not a real context. In that case, why not just do four different psalms? Why couldn't this be four different topics instead of all being in the same one? Well, I would argue that as we look at this psalm here in Psalm 19, that what we're going to see is that the psalmist David is using this structure of a song, of a poem even, to teach us about these four different topics as they really are and also show them the connection between them. Because Psalm 19 has a context. It's showing us something that has a line traced all the way through it. And I believe that line is this. Psalm 19 is about the revelation of God. God being revealed is what Psalm 19 is about. It's going to tell us how God reveals himself what it means for us that God has revealed himself, and what the hope of God's revelation ultimately is. Now, it seems like it's all over the place, like it's you know, jerking us from one top to the other, but it's actually got a logical flow that's going here through the psalm as we look. And I believe, again, that's about the revelation of God. Now, what is revelation? Revealing, right? And, and I wanted somebody just to say revealing because that sounds like a Bible word. And sometimes when we hear a Bible word, we put it in a box in our mind and we go, oh, that's a Bible word, revelation. Uh, you know, that, that's one of those words that just only really has a context in a biblical sense. But the word just means revealing, right? Something is being revealed. And so revelation is not just some lofty theological concept. All we're really talking about is God revealing himself 
to us in his creation. The question is, how does God reveal himself? And that's a real question. I'm just asking, how does God reveal himself to us? Nature. Nature, okay. Through his word. Through his word. That's it. We've just hit both of them, okay? God reveals himself to us today through the creation, we could say more generally, and through his direct revelation, which is his word. Those are the two ways that God has revealed himself. Now, I will give a caveat and say there have been times in the past where God revealed himself directly, uh, not through the use of the scriptures. He would reveal himself to prophets. He would speak to them directly, to patriarchs. Uh, He would uh, do miraculous events in history. And that was a direct revelation of God. But if you want to boil it down today, God reveals himself through his creation and through his Bible. That's the way that God reveals himself to us today. Now, as we start Psalm 19, if we'll go back to the first four verses here, we're going to see that David begins with natural revelation. That's what we're going to call it, natural revelation. That's where David starts in this psalm. And notice again what he says. (laughs) Excuse me. The heavens declare the glory of God, And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. First thing that David notes is this. Creation is saying something. When we think about God saying something, we think about the words of the Bible. We can't get much more direct than God having his words written down for us in the Bible. But David says creation declares something. And the expanse, the sky above, it proclaims his handiwork. Now, what, the reason that's important to what we're going to talk about tonight is there's some idea, I think, that when we look at creation, there's just this kind of formless sense of awe that it's supposed to form us. We look and we go, oh man, that just fills me with so many feelings and I'm just in shock and awe at the beauty of creation. But it doesn't go much farther than that. It's just a general feeling. But David says, The heavens and all that we see are declaring something. There's something that they are saying to us. Look what he goes on to say. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Now that verse is kind of difficult for me because that's got a double negative in it. But what it's saying is there is no speech or words, any place in the world where they're talking, where people are communicating, there's no place where they have not heard the words that are spoken by nature. All people have seen this in the world around them. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the earth. David says natural revelation shows us this. One, that the creation is saying something about God. The creation says something about God, not just something in general, not just, wow, what an amazing creation. It's saying something about God. Two, that it is a constant witness, right? Day to day, night to night. This wasn't a one-time deal. It wasn't like the Red Sea being pushed back and the people that saw it go, wow, there is a God. He is alive, and he just pushed this water back that we walked through. No, this is a constant witness to God. Every day we can see the truth of natural revelation, and it's a universal witness. It it hasn't been kept from anybody. It hasn't been kept from any nation, from any people. This kind of message is something that can be seen by everyone. And so what the Bible is teaching here is that something about God can be learned through natural revelation. Now, quick caveat, can everything about God be learned through natural revelation? Absolutely not. 
Natural revelation cannot tell us everything about God. We're going to talk about that more in just a few minutes. But as I often say, you know, going up to a tree and studying the bark on a tree cannot tell me anything about, let's say, uh, the, the fact that God is Father, Son, and Spirit, the fact that God sent his son Jesus to die for me, uh, the, you know, the story of Israel's history. I won't find that written on the bark of a tree. But looking at a tree can tell me what? That there is a God that there is a creator, that there is a higher force out there somewhere that's intelligently designed the world around me. It can tell me that, and that knowledge should push me to seek out what else he's said, what else he's done. And so again, natural revelation pushes us and can teach us something. Um, now again, this goes beyond the argument even that the universe just shows evidence of design. We talk about this a lot when, we, when it comes to evolution and things like that. The evolutionists would say the world is a total accident. Everything happened by chance. It's a cosmic explosion. It's all of these things. That's what they would say. They said there is no design in the universe. And they have their reasons for that. Well, we would fight back and say, well, the universe does show design, right? It does show that someone is designing it. But we want to go farther than that because there's lots of designers that make bad things. I don't know if you've ever went to an art gallery or just peeked around the art world on the internet. There's lots of people that design things that are awful. It's awful design. It's not good. We want to go beyond just saying the universe is designed. We want to say the design of the universe shows us something about the nature of the person who designed it. The design actually has fingerprints of the person who designed it. Now, you can see this at an art gallery, by the way. If you went to an art gallery that was just showing exclusively one artist, maybe they paint 25 different paintings, but what would you note throughout them? Patterns, common features, styles, things like that that you would see, of course. We, we can see the same thing with music. There's a lot of times as I listen to the radio, and all I listen to is stuff from the 1970s and you know, around that era, so I was really born in the wrong time. But because I do, sometimes I'm listening to the radio and a song will come on that I've never heard before. In about 30 seconds, what can I tell you? I can tell you who sung it, right? Why? Because I know the artist. I know the style. I know the voice. I can see it. And so, again, creation and natural revelation is not just, well, there is some designer. It actually bears the fingerprints of a good designer. Now, I want you to think about, if you can picture in your mind, uh, and, and when I think about this, I always go to our fall retreats that we go on as a congregation. We went up to the mountains. If you're in a mountain on the top, you know, a cabin on the top of a mountain in the Smokies, and you look out into one of those little valleys, and it's just filled with beautiful fall trees, and you look out at that, what does that make you feel? Uh, it makes me feel something, right? I don't know if I have an exact awe, right? We go, wow, that is just, what, what do we say? That is just beautiful. It's beautiful, right? Now, again, What's interesting is, when we think about you know, looking at a view like that, about 100 years ago now, it's really been about that long, maybe just a little bit less, education systems started talking to kids about their feelings. Uh, and it's always dangerous when the educational system wants to talk to people about their feelings. But what they did, and this was again back in going from the 20s even up into the 40s, and I, I know there's some examples in Britain, I've seen textbooks, where they were teaching kids, when you look at a beautiful waterfall or a beautiful landscape, and you think to yourself, man, that is so beautiful. What that actually means is it makes you 
feel beautiful, but there's nothing inherently beautiful about it. It's all subjective, right? Now, again, there's some aspect to this that's true because what's beautiful to you and what's beautiful to me may not be the same thing. For instance, we might have different tastes in music. We might have different tastes in paintings. But the problem is when you tell people that everything that you want to attribute to, let's say, creation, whether you say it's beautiful, whether you say it's awe-inspiring, they say, well, it's not actually beautiful and awe-inspiring. That's just a feeling that you have in here. What happens is you say there's nothing intrinsically good about creation. And it sounds, you say, well, I don't understand what the big difference between that is. But what ultimately becomes of it is people, and we're, we become guilty of this, start looking at things in creation saying, well, there's nothing intrinsically good about it. It's just kind of neutral, right? What's good is how it makes us feel. Whereas for years and for centuries, people all agreed, no, there is something intrinsically majestic about a mountain. For instance, you know all these old songs that talk about you know, fields of grain, mountains, majesty. They attributed honor to these things, not because it made them feel honorable, but because they looked at what God had made and said, wow, this really is good. Whether I look at it or not, it's good. And so again, when we look at natural revelation, it can show us that yes, not only do we live in a world, which is what, you know, education, we live in a neutral world. It's just a world that we happen to be in that's here by accident. Creation and natural revelation shows us, no, we live in a good world, a created good world. Um, now, Paul, he shows in Romans chapter 1 that creation reveals specific aspects of God. If you look in verse 18 of chapter 1, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse." So when Paul points to the creation that God has made, he doesn't just say, we look at creation and see that some sort of being made it, uh, some sort of person did, there's some general idea of a God. No, he says what everybody can see from creation are two things. One, that God is eternally powerful. We see a creation that shows us that this is created by someone with immense power. And two, it shows us his divine nature. Now again, as I've said, nothing inherently in creation tells us that God is Father, Son, and Spirit. Or maybe once we talk about other theological concepts about God, but what it does tell us is what God said about creation in the very first chapter of the Bible. When he looked at it and he said what? It's good. It's good. The nature of God as a good God is revealed in creation. And Paul says they have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world so that those who see it are without excuse. Now, again, since the dawn of time, people that have not had necessarily God's special revelation have all believed that there's been some kind of God. Okay, they said they looked at the world around them and said, well, we have to worship something, right? Because obviously there's something out there to be worshipped. There's something worthy of praise that made the world around us that we see. It's really only recently, right, that we've decided, well, actually, we've discovered that gods are, uh, that they're not necessary, right? We don't need gods. We don't need this idea of creation because obviously things can just kind of happen on their own. But again, Paul says these kind of people are actually going to be held responsible, right? Responsible in some sense and judge for the fact that anyone that looks at the creation can see that there is a God. Now, David's going to give a specific example in Psalm 19, if we go back there, 
<coughs> he's going to give a specific example of how a part of creation reveals God's glory to us. Look, at, starting at the latter part of verse 4. In, uh, no, you're right, you're right. You're, you, you went to the right spot there. It's kind of a weird break in the verse. We'll start with the word, In them he has set a tent for the sun. He's talking about you know, the word that goes throughout all the world and all the earth. In, in them, in the world, in the heavens, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Now, this makes sense given what David started at the beginning of the psalm. He said, the heavens declare the glory of God. Now, the specific example that he's going to do is he's going to give the sun, right? Now, who all has seen the sun? Everybody in this room has seen the sun. Everybody who lives on the earth has seen the sun. The sun is hidden from nobody. I know there's a few spots where you have long bits of night, right? And not a whole lot of sunlight. But most everyone uh, who's been on the earth has seen the sun and understands it. You know about the cycle of days and nights, which has already been referenced to. And David says that that cycle in and of itself shows the nature and the glory of God. Well, again, the first question that we have is how does the sun show the glory of God? What's the obvious answer? How does the sun show the glory of God? It exists, right? I mean, it's a gigantic fireball that flies through the sky. No one in here has ever made a gigantic fireball that flies through the sky on a circuit on a regular basis. The fact of its existence shows the glory of God, okay? We understand that. The sun is there. There must be a God that put it there. Wow, what a powerful God. But David goes farther than just that. Again, it's not just that there is a sun, and that's amazing. That is good. But how else do we see that the sun represents the nature of God? I like that he says, the sun comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. What would you say is the emotion behind a bridegroom leaving his chamber? This is as he's preparing to go to his wedding. What's the emotion there? joy right happiness exactly god god is saying as the sun as it bursts into the sky with that sunrise i want you to think about the happiness of a bridegroom walking into his wedding that's the kind of emotion behind it and he says like a strong man runs its course with joy he attributes strength to the sun Right? He says the sun is this joyful, strong man that's running its course. Now, again, a lot of times because of the, the world that we live in, when we think about something like the sun, we say, well, what do you know about the sun? And we go, well, let me think back to science class. I know about you know, the, the sun is on an orbit and the earth's on an orbit around the sun. And it's all this scientific stuff that works. And we know that to be true. But when God looks at the sun that he created... He attributes more to it than that. It's good, right? It's, it's almost as if the sun is happy to run the course that God has set it on. It's happy to do exactly what God designed it to do. But what really fascinates me about this psalm, and I think it's a, an interesting case study for the rest of the Bible when we look at this, the sun is a primary creation, okay? And by what I mean by that is the sun at the end of creation week, the sun was here. Right? In fact, we know that a lot of things were here at the end of creation week. But there was a lot of things that weren't here at the end of creation week. Okay, We didn't have cities. We didn't have iPhones on the, the seventh day. I don't know how they survived without smartphones back then. Right? 
They didn't have tools. Well, I say that. We don't know how quickly things developed. But there were things that developed over time in history, right? So the sun is a primary creation. But God doesn't just use primary creations to explain himself to us or to explain his creation to us. When you think about it, as David uses this, he uses images of what? Bridegrooms. Of strong men running their course. The word there evokes the sense of a warrior, right? A warrior on the battlefield. These are things that develop through history and culture, and yet God can still use these things to help us understand his creation and his nature better. I want to show you a couple other examples of this, how God uses a primary creation, and he'll also use a secondary creation. Look at Psalm 147. I like this verse. Because we often think of God and fire and God and judgment of fire. But note what Psalm 147 says. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? It gets to be 40 degrees or whatever it was this morning and I start getting really chilly. I have never been in a really cold place before. I, you, I know several of you would tell me that. Some of you have been. You've been in really cold places where it hurt to just stand outside. And then you read a verse that says, God, who can stand before his cold? That's a primary creation. That's something that we have from the very beginning that we can all understand. The, the cold, that nature. But look at Isaiah 49. Here's another way that God reveals himself to us. It says, truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. Now, we're talking about God here, but look in verse 17. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. The, the image here is God is putting on armor, okay? Now, again, can God put on armor? Is figurative, right? But yet the picture remains. These are things that humans have created. This is culture that we've created, and yet God uses it to show us a picture of what he does. Why does he do that? So we can understand it. We understand armor. We understand why a man would put on armor. And it's not a one-to-one -one comparison with God, but there's something about that that truly does relate to the way that God feels when his people are unjustly persecuted. He says, I'm going to do something about this. And so he puts on armor to do it. Now, these pictures use things, again, that have been here since creation and things that have been developed in history. But it all points back to the nature of God. And it reminds us in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16, where it says, For by Jesus... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So we, we look at the world and we look at creations, we look at culture and say, well, these things just kind of happen because they had to or because of the survival. But you can, again, we've, we've had lessons from this pulpit about things like farming and agriculture, things that were perhaps created from the beginning of time. God designed things this way so that a man named Jesus could stand in a boat and preach a parable about a sower about the, the, the sower who sows these different kinds of crops. And, and it'd be something that he can use for his purposes. All things were made through him and for him. 
Now, I want to say just briefly about this, because when, when you have chapters like Psalm 19, and they talk about, you know, well, the sun's on its circuit, it goes from one side of the sky to the others in the heavens, and he makes a tent in the a tabernacle for it in the heavens, you have people and atheists that want to pull out this scripture and say, look at the scientific inaccuracy of the Bible, right? It's obviously not true that there is a tabernacle for the sun. The sun does not go to sleep at night and go to sleep in a house. This is obviously wrong. Now, again, as we've already said, this language is figurative okay it's figurative language it's poetic language and we can use that as a defense but one thing that i've thought of in recent times is we often play much too much defense when it comes to atheism okay they're the attacker and we're on defense what i would push back against is this and say science as they would view it in that kind of thing and they say well the sun doesn't really work that way the sun works like this this and this according to science the problem of it is they believe that science is the only objective neutral view through which to view the world and so they say there's nothing special about the sun going across the sky there's nothing special about that that doesn't reveal anything it's just the natural course of events the problem with that is that worldview is against what the Bible says. The Bible says, no, there is something special about the sun going across the sky. We can actually attribute goodness to that because God is the one that did it. And the reason that I think that we should kind of push back against this is because science never works as a worldview. Now, you hear people talk about worldview a lot, and they say, well, Worldview is the lens or the filter through which you view everything in the world, okay? And that's true. That is what worldview is. And people say, well, you can't trust that person. They have a Christian worldview. Well, my question would be, what is really the fruit of a scientific worldview? I mean, science is a tool and a good tool, a God-given tool, by which that we can look at and learn things that are measurable, right? We can measure things, we can draw conclusions from observances that we have over these different things, but yet science, when we take it from a tool to a worldview, we take our intellect and ability and we really kill anything special about creation. Because if a scientific worldview is true and everything just kind of happens because it happens, and it happens because it was set uh, you know, on, on its course, whether it be a Big Bang or whatever, then there's nothing special about the world. There's nothing special about creation in any kind of sense. Now, we've even been guilty of this in, you know, quote unquote Christianity over the years because there's been a, a heavy leaning into what's called deism. Does anybody know what deism is? Anybody? Exactly. Yes, and, and so what, what you're, you're exactly on to it. Deism, the, the, my layman terms way of thinking about it is that God, there is a God that created the universe. He wound it up, and, and then he sat it down and hasn't touched it since. And, and so what it essentially comes down to is that there is a God, and he is alive, but he does not affect what's going on here now. In other words, he kind of started the ball rolling, and things roll on as they do. Now, again, there's a certain way of thinking about that that might be kind of a way that I could talk about the way that things work. But on the other hand, there's so much that we don't know. There's so much that scientists don't know. And you have verses like Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2. I, I love it. It says, In the last days God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. I don't think that's it. Go, go to the next verse. Can you go to? Uh, maybe not. The, word, the one I was looking for, I put down the wrong verse in there. But the one I was looking for says, the world is held together by the power of Jesus' 
word, essentially. By the power of Jesus, the whole world is held together. The biblical worldview is, if God was not here holding the world together, if God was not making it happen, what would happen? It'd all be over, right? And so again, the deistic worldview that, oh, things just kind of happen, they are the way they are, it's all on their course. The Bible says, no, everything is upheld by the power of Jesus. The, 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 the reason that things continue is because God wills it to continue. And so when David says, look at the sun on its course, we can say, thank God for the sun. Thank God that it does what it's supposed to do because that's revealed itself to us and it reveals God to us as we look at it. Now we're running out of time here. Uh, let's shift focus on to the next part of Psalm 19 and verse 7. David just said, the heavens declare the glory, there's natural revelation, and that can reveal some things about God to us. But then it seems like he takes this very quick shift, right? And in verse 7 he says, the law of the Lord is perfect. Now we said there's only two ways God reveals himself to us. It's through natural revelation and through direct revelation. Well, what do we see in Psalm 19? The first part deals with natural revelation. And directly after it, David says, the law of the Lord is perfect. Talking about direct revelation. Now, the way that this works in the psalm, it sets up a parallel. And what it does, the first part of the psalm, it says God is amazing and we know it because of his world. The second part says God is amazing and we know it because of his what? Word. We know it's am he's amazing because of his word. The direct revelation shows us the power and the glory of God. Now, what's interesting about this is for many of us, and I'm also included in this a lot of times, we would love to look through a telescope and look at the stars. We would love to look at nature. We'd like to see some National Geographic footage of all the animals and the wildlife and the sea creatures and go, wow, God is amazing. But we don't get excited when we pick up our Bible and read it and go, wow, God is amazing. That's not exciting to us. We don't get excited and see that in God's word. But David doesn't think that way. David says, no, it's equal, if not greater than the creation, the law of the Lord. He says the law of the Lord is perfect. That is a high praise for the word of God. He says it's perfect. What can it do for us? One, he says it can revive the soul. It says the testimony of the Lord makes wise the simple. It brings wisdom. The precepts of the Lord are right, and they cause rejoicing of the heart. That means happiness. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. What we see is David's now saying, we've looked at the world, now look at the word. Because this is where we can truly, now that we know there is a God, and he's made a good world, now we can truly be refreshed, we can become wise, we can become joyful if we look at his word. Now look in verse 10. He says, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Now, what's fascinating about this is we just talked about pictures in the first part of this chapter. But David uses pictures again, now not for the world, but for the word of God. He says it's more desirable than gold, and it's sweeter also than honey. Do these verses mean anything to somebody who does not know the value of gold? No. Do these verses mean anything to somebody who has never tasted the sweetness of honey? No. These pictures become ways that we can understand just how good the word of God is. And especially things that we understand that are not always as easy to come to our senses. When you put honey on your tongue, how quickly does that sweetness hit your brain? It's immediate, right? And maybe you don't like honey. But either way, you're going to taste honey as soon as it hits your tongue, right? When we read God's word, it's not always that apparent. 
Sometimes we might read a chapter and struggle through and go, man, I don't feel very uplifted. I don't feel like I got a lot out of that. But God says, no, my word is like honey. You may not realize it. You may not have your senses attuned to that, but it's that sweet for you. And again, if you know how valuable gold is, it holds that much value for your life. We see the exact same thing in Proverbs 24. Look, look what it says here. My son, eat honey, for it is good, and the drippings of the honeycomb are sweet to your taste. Know that wisdom is such to your soul. If you find it, there will be a future, and your hope will not be cut off. I think this is fascinating because, again, what we know what we want is we want the wisdom of God. We want the wisdom of his word. That's what's really important. That's what we need. But here Solomon doesn't say, okay, let me teach you the wisdom of God. Once I teach it to you, that's all you need to know. What's the command? Eat honey. You have to eat the honey first, right? And know that it's good and that it's sweet. And once you understand that, now let me teach you this. Wisdom is such to your soul. Does that mean anything to someone who hasn't tasted honey? No. And the reason I say this is this. God uses the creation to teach us about him. And about what he wants us to learn. And about who he wants us to be. And so, again, as you think about it, don't just think, well, this is an interesting picture God gives us to kind of get at something about the way that he is. But I would go farther and say, no, God expects us to interact with these things, to know them, and through knowing them, come to know him better and know the truth about him better. We're running out of time. I want to focus on the two last parts of Psalm 19. Look in verse 12. After everything that David has said, that we see God through the world, we see God through the word, then he says this, who can discern his errors? Not God's, he's talking about his own. Who can discern his own errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Why is it that after David looks at the world and after he looks at the word, the first thing out of his mouth is, God, forgive me? What happens when we see God through the world and through the word? What do we realize? How small we are, how sinful we are, how weak we are to his strength. And so when David sees these revelations of God that we can see today, the first thing out of his mouth is, forgive me. Forgive me and forgive me even the things that I don't know because I know so little. You know so much. I know so little. Forgive me of what I don't know and keep me back from presumptuous sins. Then I shall be blameless. Only with the power of the God that made the world and the God that spoke the word can we truly be blameless and innocent. And then David says in verse 14 to finish it. Uh, I think I put that one on there. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. What's amazing about this is the God that created everything and the God that gave his perfect law accepts the worship of me. That doesn't make sense. He, there's no reason he should accept my worship. There's no reason that he should look down upon me. It's what David said in Psalm 8. When I consider the heavens and see the glory that you've made, I ask, what is man that you consider him? But he does consider us. He does look upon us. And when he looks on us and sees us and makes us blameless by forgiving us of our sin, it's at that point 
that we can worship him and pray to him and meditate on him in a way that's acceptable in his sight. But we cannot do that unless we see him through his revelation, whether it be through the world first and then through the word that he's given us. And so when you think of Psalm chapter 19 and you go over that in your mind, I want you to think about the revelation of God. We see it in the creation that he's made. We see it in the word that he's given us. It should, one, make us humble, but once it's humbled us, it can make us righteous because God can make us righteous. Thank you all for your attention tonight.